This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we have an exciting show for you this week. We're going to give an update on potential design changes to the American Eagle Bullion Program. We're also going to make an interesting connection between Switzerland and the Apollo 11 mission. We'll also be exploring the history of the Winged Liberty Head, or Mercury Dime, in our featured series segment. And we have a great interview with Mark Borkhart of the Early American Copper Society and Heritage Auctions. But first, we need to remind you that if you're enjoying these programs, please subscribe. However you're accessing podcasts, we want to make sure that you don't miss a one. So tell me about this American Eagle program. Our senior editor, Paul Jokes, has an interesting take about these proposed design changes. So there's a lot of conversation going on about changing the design of the American Eagle bullion coins, which are, of course, our gold and silver bullion coins that the U.S. Mint puts out, and due in part to the rash of counter fitting that has been seen internationally and a tremendous number of counterfeit bullion coins coming into the United States. There has been talk about changing the design and also the designs have been in place since 1986. So there's some talk about just changing it up for the sake of variety as well. And Paul Jilks, our venerable senior editor, sat down with the two people who are actually responsible for the designs, Miley Busick-Frost and John Mercanti, uh, to get their take on what a potential change might look like, how they feel about a potential change, and that sort of thing. And Miley Busick-Frost was not particularly happy about it. She felt that the symbolism, especially on the gold eagle... Yeah, uh, her, her family of eagles design on the yeah, reverse. Yeah, the family of eagles design on the reverse, where a, an adult bald eagle is bringing food or sustenance or some something home to some chicks in a nest. She felt that that design was really important about reflecting an American value, American values of protecting the next generation and preserving the values of liberty and justice and that sort of thing. So she felt that that design merited keeping. And she also felt that since U.S. bullion coins are so popular internationally, she felt that it would be doing a disservice to the prominence and the sort of value of the coins to change the design because people are already across the world, people are already so familiar with the American Eagle designs as they presently sit. Well, and one thing you think about as this discussion goes on, you know, the Royal Canadian Mint's Maple Leaf design is unchanged since it debuted, both in gold, uh, I believe, 79, and then silver, like 1988, I believe. But what the Royal Canadian Mint has done is issue special designs with limited mintages. Now, when you know we're talking Canada, we're talking a mintage of a million being limited because they're selling 10, 20, 30 million of the regular one-ounce silver. But they do these special designs in silver. would be interesting if the U.S. Mint would be able to take that approach. Another thing that jumps out to me as we talk about this is the – 
prevalence of grading insert labels that are signed by the designers. Mm. This would, if there was a new design, then there could be a new label or labels with the new designer's signature. uh, Maybe Frost really just enjoyed signing her name to to those those grading labels. No, those are those are all good points. And I'll be curious to see if they ultimately redesign them. And there's also been talk about retaining the current designs. This is a course of action that Frost favors is well, keeping the current <laughs> naturally keeping the current designs and adding some of the advanced security features that appear on things like Canadian Boolean or other places or other world Boolean coins, because some of them have very sophisticated safety features. And John Mercanti, though, for his part, was much more sanguine, essentially saying they were bound to change eventually. <laughs> so he was a little more OK with it, whereas Frost seemed somewhat more. Frosty. Um, no, she had a frosty reception. <laughs> the idea received a frosty reception. <laughs> and, and on that note, yeah. uh, it, whatever happens, of course, Coin World will cover it in print and online frosty and we'll probably talk about it here on the podcast. Another interesting development this week was something that, you know, usually I write about new issues. The, this stuff comes in from World Mints and, and central banks, and there's just no end to the topics and the sometimes the irrelevance of the issuer versus the topic. So when I saw that Switzerland had a new coin for the Apollo 11 moon landing, I went, why? What's what's the big deal? I mean, you know, that's an American program. You know, I, I could understand if Palau or some of these, you know, Cook Islands or some of these island nations out in the middle of nowhere are issuing the coin with the theme. We see that a lot. But Switzerland's, you know, a very esteemed, they have a, a very restrained commemorative coin program. Well, this is very interesting. This so Silver 20 francs coin shows the solar wind sail that was with Buzz Aldrin up on the moon's surface, on the lunar surface. That was actually a Swiss a science experiment that was sent up on the Apollo 11 mission. So little did I know that there was a true Swiss connection to the Apollo 11 mission. And so that's on this new collector coin. That's fascinating. What was the sale that was sent up there? What was the experiment seeking to test? It was something about the uh, sun's isotopes. It, it reflected or collected isotopes and they brought it down to earth and analyzed them to sort of discern the solar debris or the, the like I say, the reflection, the material that the sun was emitting. And so huh. this is, you know, a 50th anniversary, big anniversary. Switzerland has a coin and it actually has a real connection, unlike some of these other coins that are just tangential. Right. So uh, that is, I did not know that the Swiss were somehow involved yes. in the space program. Speaking of things I didn't know, Jeff, I think you might have a trivia question for me. I think you might actually know this one, but we'll give it a shot. And (laughs) I might. (laughs) And uh, the listeners, I, I. I bet they do. This is novice level question from the Coin World Trivia game. So I might get it. Good. So on what U.S. coin is the date in Roman numerals? On mm. what U.S. coin is the date in Roman numerals? XVIIIQ5. Um, well, I'm going to have to reflect on that. While you're reflecting on While I'm thinking, there is something that I think that our listeners have just got to see. In lieu of our usual social media segment, we're just going to feature one social media post from here on out. So, but this is something that I felt that you've got to see. So, on Reddit from user Bobo Bo Bobo, five B, basically capital B O, five times, all one word. I think that's a reference to an old. 
Cartoon Network show. But anyway, this person found a, a 1944 Jefferson Warnickel with a die crack going right through the S above Monticello because, as many people who are familiar with Jefferson Nichols know, the mint mark was moved from the right of Monticello and the mint mark was enlarged and moved above Monticello to denote the wartime silver composition that was used to save copper for shell casings. So they moved the, the mint mark and enlarged it. And this nickel has a die crack that goes right through the S and it makes it look exactly like a dollar sign. It's a great big die crack and it shoots right through the middle. And it's I thought it was very funny and I felt that our listeners just had to see it. If you want to see it, we think you got to see it. We'll have a link in the show notes for you to find that. Be sure to check that out. And we're going to give you one of these a week, something you just got to see. Also new for this episode is a feature that Chris is going to talk about. Mm. We're highlighting a series every week. And the series this week is on everybody's coin that they love to call the wrong thing. I joke <laughs> because, of course, we have it beat over our this, heads. This, this really is, is this is your hobby horse. You it really is don't like. not a mercury dime. You really don't like this. Well, I call it a mercury dime. Yeah. But it's so, not really. So it, sure. But so what are we talking about? Chris? We are talking about the winged Liberty head dime, which is the penultimate dime design because the Roosevelt dime, which is the current circulating dime came next. So this is the penultimate dime design since the introduction of 10 cent coins in 1793. So these are perennially popular coins. And the series was produced and circulated between 1916 and 1945. So it covered the two world wars and the depression so fascinating slice of history and it was designed by adolf weinman who was a previously unknown german-born sculptor and artist who actually beat out some pretty big names to have his design selected because the mint opened up a limited competition today what the mint does is they put out a call for design submissions and artists anywhere in the country can submit their own designs for going for example the state quarters. sometimes sometimes well yeah it yes. depends on the program yes it depends because generally Generally speaking. Yeah, there's the artistic infusion program where these right. artists are vetted. Uh, yes, whether right. some The commemorative coin programs like we talked uh, several weeks ago about the Basketball Hall of Fame right. design contest. So yeah. it so varies. It, but often what the yes. Mint does is, is that they try to solicit designs from the public. But and it, so who did Weinman beat out for this? Oh, he beat out a lot of people, including Charles Barber, who had designed the previous subsidiary silver coinage. The term subsidiary silver coinage denotes non-dollar silver coins. So yeah, the or fractional. You fractional. Is, subsidiary and fractional. Subsidiary and, and fractional. And, and I would call terms. the design substandard. <laughs> so Charles Barber had designed the the dime and the quarter and the half dollar that Weinman would beat out. The Weinman only beat out the half dollar and the dime in 1916 because Adolf Weinman also designed the Walking Liberty half dollar, which I'm sure we'll be covering in a future segment. Barber coins were widely considered very ugly. In fact, when the coins were designed, coin club notes from across the country and entries into numismatic publications at the time said that they were really ugly. It was like, boo, so, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really quite mean to Barber's Liberty. But Theodore Roosevelt in 1904 had felt the dust needed to be kicked off the tires of American coins because he felt that America is great and we need to have coins that sort of live up to our lofty visions and ideals. So between 1909 and 1921, there were a whole bunch of new designs introduced that completely changed the face of the nation's coinage. And this was probably one of the most famous, certainly one of and, the most popular. And this became – and so – Adolf Weinman's design, which on the obverse features a portrayal of a very young kind of petite 
Liberty with a cap on, and the cap has wings coming out of it, which for Weinman symbolized freedom of thought. The idea being that in America, free speech, free expression, free thought are all encouraged. And, you know, this is a depiction of Liberty with her thoughts flying through the air. And not... Mercury, the messenger. Now, yes, God. the other, the reason for the the more common moniker that irks Jeff is the fact that Mercury, the god of messengers and the god of travel and a whole bunch of other stuff from ancient Greek and Roman mythology, also has a winged cap. So, a lot of people thinking that it was a nod to mythology took to calling it the Mercury Dime, which is also way catchier than Winged Liberty Head. And then it's a lot easier to say. A lot easier off the to say. The reverse features a, a facies. The not feces, feces, um, an ancient Roman symbol. <laughs> Jeff didn't like that one. Um, an ancient Roman symbol for power and unity from which we actually get the term fascism and fascist and all those different derivations comes from that term. So a simple facies with an olive branch wrapping around it is on the reverse, which symbolized both American national unity and our sort of peace loving nature through the olive branch. So the coins were then produced between, as I said, 1916 in 1945, and there are a few uh, rare types and rare varieties. The very first year, 1916, you can acquire very inexpensively, but if you want an example minted at the Denver Mint, you'd better be willing to pull out your pocketbook, because even in really low grades, about good three, good four, that's going to be a several hundred dollar coin, and that's... Oh, yeah, four hundred dollars And you'll be be lucky to find, you know, to find a nice-looking example even in that grade for that price point. And then, in addition, the 1945 Micro S, there's a variant in 1945 where the S mint mark, which is on the reverse to the bottom right of the faces, is really, really tiny. That commands a premium. There's some overdates. There are, there are a couple of overdates in the 40s. Uh, the 29, I believe, had a double die obverse. There are a couple of double die obverses and a couple of overdate varieties. So there's, if you're looking for just a straight up date set, you'll be able to do that very easily and very inexpensively. But if you want to do all the dates, all the mint marks, that's going to be even more expensive. And if you want the varieties, that's going to be another step further. And you could just do a, a short set World War II dates. Mm. And some of those, there are a lot of them that are very inexpensive in high grades. And you can also find them, especially for the 1940s, with the full bands designation. Yeah, the full facies, split bands. Yeah. Full split bands. The facies are held together by a series of three bands that run perpendicular to the rods that make up the bundle of sticks, essentially, that is the facies. And you can see, and each of them is composed of two little, you know, they're bas- they basically look like they wrapped a piece of twine around it. And if you can see... Each of the two bands for all three of the band sets going up the length of the facies, that's called full bands. That indicates a really sharply struck example, usually in a really high grade because those are some of the first things to wear off. So even if it was a sharply struck example, if it had been in circulation for a long time, they'd have gotten worn off anyway. So full split bands can add a tremendous amount of value. 1916S, the first year the series minted in San Francisco, that is a in MS65 regular is you know without full split bands is a $200 coin. It is an $850 coin in the same grade with full split bands. Awesome. So it's a tremendous amount of difference but you can find full split band varieties of common dates in the the 30s and 40s and even into the 20s. You can find full split band you know, high grade dimes relatively inexpensively, which makes it a really great series for beginners and more experienced people trying to hone their eye, identifying those bands and identifying varieties. Awesome. So this uh, little exploration into numismatic history, we're going to follow that with this week in numismatic history. Mm. 
It's notable because this week, uh, on May 19th, 1933, that's an important part of this. It sure is. The production of the St. Gaudens Gold $20 Double Eagles were suspended at the Philadelphia Mint. So 1933, everybody knows the story of that. Even, I mean, this is a, a coin whose rarity and mystique has transcended the hobby. Mm, the 1933 Double Eagle, they were made. Some got out at the Mint. There's lots of suggestion that this was surreptitious. This is a legendary coin. There's only one legally allowed to be owned today. Mm. The owner of that is unknown. The U.S. Mint has had uh, 10 of these turned over to them by the family of a jeweler in Philadelphia, who was known to trade in these at the time. And King Farouk of Egypt owned one, didn't he? That was the one that's legal to own. That, that's the, the one legal one. Is yes. The King so, so the government uh, granted that export license and it sold at auction in 2002, a little more than $7 million. Part of the sale price was the $20 that the Treasury reserved uh, received to monetize <laughs> the, the gold coin. I, I, I love that that total is $7,590,000. Pounds. Something like that, yeah. And then twenty dollars, twenty dollars. I think that's so. And and so part of the the way this was allowed legally was the government said we're going to take half of the sale. So they allowed the sale, but they said they got half of it. And the dealer who was involved in that, Steve Fenton, and the auction house, they took the rest of that. This was it was a legal battle. So it's very interesting, very exciting that that is forms this week in numismatic history. All right. Well, and speaking of $20 gold eagles, I think we might have a sense as to what the trivia answer is. Oh, you're giving it away I know. for the reader. Gave, gave it the away listener. for the listener. The listener. So the trivia question was, on what U.S. coin is the date in Roman numerals? And the answer, after racking my brain a little while, is... Not, not long. It didn't not, take not, long. Yeah, I know. A little while. Is the St. Gons $20 gold eagle. When they were first issued in 1907, they put the date in Roman numerals, which I imagine confused people unaccustomed to reading Roman numerals. I don't know. They might, they might have used Roman numerals more more than, than oh, today. Oh, that's, that's definitely true. Kind of like nobody reads cursive today and writes cursive. And, that's true. You know, the, everybody who tells time, they have the phone that has the, yeah. you know, the digital oh, time. I, I wear a watch, but I check my phone if someone asks me what time it is. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, it's just a fashion statement. <laughs> All right. So we also received a question from a listener, I think. We did. And we thank you for sending these questions in. Be sure to keep them coming. We'll use them as discussion jumping points here. And before we do that, I'll, I'll remind you again, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any of this fun stuff. We have a lot of fun. We hope you are. And if you have a question we can answer, please send it to either myself or Chris. This week, Timothy Fallon writes, says that he is back collecting after 30 years and he's loving it. So welcome back. Absolutely. Glad to have you back in the fold. He's eager to go to some smaller shows that are like an hour away. He's wants to look at many coins, purchase a few to add to his collection. His question is, what is the etiquette surrounding show attendants dealing with coins, picking them up? Is it rude to examine one with a loop? He actually gives us a twofer, though. The second question was he bought a uncirculated mint set and he's I'm dying to look at them, but worrying that opening the box will affect the value. I don't want to damage yeah. the box and ruin the value. So what's the trick? Thanks and love you guys. Well, thank you, Timothy, for listening to us. 
What are your thoughts on the first yeah, question? First so talk um, about your experience at shows and <laughs> etiquette. Etiquette. Um, I found in life that basic politeness covers most settings. <laughs> so um, we're talking I, about coin shows. Etiquette though. wise. <laughs> well, that's that's a more rough and tumble setting. Um, generally, I've found that. The only things you can really do wrong would be breaches of etiquette in other contexts as well. If you see a dealer in the middle of dealing with someone else, if you see a table that you want to approach, feel free to approach the table. Just walk right up. That's not that's simple enough. And then, you know, look through the case if they've got bins of miscellaneous things or boxes of things next to their cases or in their display somewhere. You know, feel free to rifle through those. You don't need to ask, you know permission to go through a box of two by twos. Like no, if, if it's wide open, it's, it's, it's meant to assume yeah, that it's, yeah, it's meant can... to be gone through. So I found that engaging people is always a nice thing to do. So if you see the dealer say hi, you know, the dealer might ask you what you're looking for. If you don't know, that's a totally acceptable answer. Just, you know, say, well, I'm just looking for all kinds of stuff. You can, you can afford to be general about that. And, you know, if they seem in the mood, make small talk, you know, chat about this and that, ask them how the show is going. That's, you know, just kind of a nice thing to do really with anyone you meet at a coin show, but especially with the dealers. But if they're talking to someone, if they're already in the middle of a deal or if they're already, you know, doing something, don't don't start talking to them. Don't interrupt that, because that's something that, you know, that person was there first. Yeah, let them know, let them finish. It, yeah. It'd be like uh, going up to the, the checkout counter at Walgreens and somebody's, you know, their items are being rung up and, and you go, oh, excuse me, I'm looking for the aloe vera. And, you know, right. Hey, yeah, and, it's, you just, know, hold on. So, I mean, wait your turn. So and really just please and thank yous work well. Oh, may I see that piece in the case if it's not too much trouble? Yeah, thank you very much. So, so so suppose you walk up and there's the dealer is not busy. And so you get a chance to say, I really would like to see, you know, this Morgan dollar and the, the PCGS uh, fatty or, you know, whatever. Now, PCGS doesn't have fatty label uh, holders, but you know what I mean? You, yeah. you, you identify what coin you want to see. It's yep. in a slab or not. Of course, you can uh, look at it with a loop. That's, that's actually that actually shows that you know what you're doing. A yes. Bit. Yes. Yeah. That that speaks to your level of uh, professional. Professionalism and intellect as you pursue the collection. Just, you know, be gentle. Don't drop it or try not, you know. I, I mean, like, if you drop it, everyone gets a mulligan, but yeah. avoid doing that. Um, yeah. th- I mean, like, I don't think any reasonable dealer would bite your head off about that because, like, it's an honest mistake. We all make yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but no, loop is very important. Don't buy a coin without looking at it under a loop, I think is a pretty common sense thing. And, and you know, if, if, if you're not interested, just you can put the coin down, slide it over, and just say, oh, thanks, but I'm, um, you know, that's not what I'm looking to spend or I'm not and, you know, not looking for this. Or. And may, maybe fodder for another discussion later, the, the whole etiquette of bargaining and asking price. I know some dealers put prices on there, some don't. Some dealers really hate it when you bargain. Others are totally cool with it and, and, and encourage so, it. Some of that comes with d- learning their style. I'm of the school it doesn't hurt to ask. Never hurts to ask, in my opinion. But I also think that once you know their style, don't, you know, if you're a guy buying a $10 coin and you never bought from them before and you offer five bucks they're probably going to look at you with a stank eye you know i mean that's <laughs> yeah because it's it's time for them and you know negotiating over trifling sums though i've definitely been known to do that i think we've addressed the hopefully we've addressed that yeah, part of the yeah, question yeah. the second part of the question you know my thought because you you say yeah, i, I want to open the, the this mint set and and will it affect the value and i think the real answer is of course it will but as well as it would affect the potential resale value in the future, it limits you, your value of enjoying it now. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, that's why we collect. We want to see what we have. It's a, you know, coins are a visual item. That's, yeah. you know, that's why you got to see it. Also, the most mint sets, especially that have been made in the last 20 or 30 years, most of them are made in large enough numbers that you're not destroying a priceless rarity and you're not sort of, Correct. you know, screwing yourself out of considerable value because the amount of value that you're going to lose even in the long term by opening it is so marginal Absolutely. that if you're dying to see it, that tiny sacrifice of value is really I will say though just the only real rule of thumb with opening mint boxes and I've violated this enough times and it's frustrated me enough that I get it just be careful like yeah. just you know yeah. gentle movements don't you know no hard sort of jerking tearing motion because you're just going to end up ripping it and then that's actually going to really reduce the value a little bit if you like tear the box if the box if the flap of the box has been used a bunch of times and if like and if where the um, you know they, the, they join together yeah the and if where they so join together is a little bit worn that's fine no one going to buy a proof for a min set is going to that's um, not going to be a deal breaker. a modern min set especially a sure. modern don't yeah. don't worry about it and, you're, and you're fine. obviously you know we're, we're saying modern mint set and in 30 years it won't be a modern mint set or yeah. it won't be as modern but the production numbers the mintage figures for these are high enough that i would agree with chris i would suggest open it have fun enjoy it look at your coins maybe you see uh, an error those are uncommon but not unheard of so you know maybe you see a die crack or there's some there's some other problem with the production that you find and you wouldn't see otherwise so our suggestion is open it you of course can choose what you want to do <laughs> that's the uh, the beautiful part about it if you have a question, somebody else out there, anyone has a question, please send it to us. We will be glad to we, answer it. We check our work emails pretty religiously, so you will you'll at least get a hold of us, and there's a very decent chance that your question will be featured on the podcast, which would be really cool. Absolutely. So, this episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by the Coin World Marketplace. Are you selling your coins on the Coin World Marketplace? Put your inventory in front of buyers from around the globe. Visit coinworld.market today and become a seller. And now, back to the show. Now, Jeff and I sat down with Mark Borkhart, a prolific numismatic researcher who has worked and continues to work for Heritage Auctions. So, please enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by Mark Borkhart, who is a cataloger with Heritage Galleries in Dallas, Texas. Mark is a familiar name and face to the numismatic hobby. He's been a participant for most of his life. We have a great talk for you today to find out about how he got into collecting and the joys of cataloging, the challenges of working at an auction house, and the current state of the hobby, and maybe a little look at where things are going. Thank you for being here today. Well, Jeff, it's my pleasure. I'm not sure I'll be able to uh, fill you in on all of those different aspects, but I'll do my best. Very good. Let's start at the beginning. You've had an interesting story about how you came to collecting and how you came into the the dealer side of it. So everyone in the hobby has an origin story. Most of us, it was the Whitman folders and you know Lincoln cents, weed cents. What's your origin story? Well, my initial origin is pretty much the same thing. When I was about six or maybe seven years old, my dad, who was a Presbyterian minister at the time, was serving a small church in Michigan. And one of the church members gave me a 1964 Red Book. Once I started going through that, I kind of got an interest in 
coin collecting and started looking through pocket change like everybody did. Uh, we were especially looking for the S-Mint pennies that were elusive in the Midwest. After uh, a few years of that, I joined the local middle school coin club and further developed the interest. Then I went home one day and I said, Dad, take me to a coin show. And he said, a coin what? <laughs> he never took heard me, of this. And he took me to a coin show. At the time, he was a college professor making about $8,000 a year salary. And the second coin show that we went to, he spent $200 for a 1955 double die penny. That was real money back then. That was a lot of money when you were making $8,000 a year. We got home, and to this day, I can still hear my mom yelling and screaming, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to feed the kids? How could you have done this? We went to, another, we went to another coin show the next uh, week, and my dad sold the coin for $250. We went home, and he gave my mom the $250. He said, spend the $200 on the bills and the food and spend the other $50 on whatever you want. And all of a sudden, she was a convert. All of a sudden, we were coin dealers, and she never said another word. I love it. <laughs> So from that moment, that that's a great little uh, story. How far in did you get? This was something that was going on during your uh, middle school age, you say, high school, college. Talk about your experiences in that time. Well, my dad uh, and I were going to shows as part-time dealers. I was still in uh, high school and college, and uh, he was still serving his job as the college professor. But we would go to uh, shows on weekends and just uh, local shows uh, in northern Ohio. Uh, occasionally, we got over to, to Pennsylvania. I remember one family trip that we took uh, to New England, and we actually set up at a show in Massachusetts. As part-time dealers from Ohio, that was pretty unusual back in the 70s. And then I was in college, and right before I was ready to graduate – in 1980, it was the silver and gold boom. Oh, sure. Everything was hopping. And I was 12 semester hours short of college graduation when I left school to take a full-time job for a coin dealer in Pittsburgh, a fellow that uh, I still uh, am close friends with today, uh, Dave Burke. And I worked in his shop. He had a, a shop in the Monroeville Mall, and I worked in his office. And that didn't work out real well for us. Uh, so I came back to Findlay, my hometown here in Ohio. And it was about 1983 that my dad and I opened a coin shop in Findlay. And everything was going quite well until the fire. We were in a shopping plaza and there was a laundromat right next to us. Oh. And the laundromat had an electrical fire, and the fire burned the entire plaza down, and we lost our coin store. Well, the fire marshal said we only lost 90% of our coin store, not 100% loss. So therefore, the insurance companies came in, and they adjusted everything, and it was not a good situation financially for us. But I look back, it was a blessing in disguise. 
because shortly after that, Bowers and Marina up in New Hampshire ran a Help Wanted ad, and I replied, and I was selected uh, out of over 100 candidates. And I was there for 15 years and then uh, went to Heritage, and I've been with Heritage Auctions now for just shy of 15 years. So that one little local event catapulted you from the Ohio landscape, as it were, numismatically, onto the national stage. And that's that's why everyone knows you today, because of... of because the, of a little fire that burned our coin shop down. Yes, that's that's yes. exactly what uh, what transpired. And um, it was a, a very difficult day, obviously, at that time. I can still remember shivering and shaking watching the store burn down. Uh, and I can certainly understand what anybody goes through in such a situation. But for me and for my family, it, it was a blessing. It just didn't seem like it, obviously, at the time. Sure. Now, in your 30 years, talk about some of the great collections that you've been privileged to catalog and work on, things that you've been able to see and hold that are incomparable. I know that the, the list is probably far much longer than we have time for in this podcast, but just talk about some of the highlights. I was very much involved with uh, the Eliasberg collection, 1996-97. I was involved with the Harry Bass gold coinage collection, which was absolutely spectacular. As a matter of fact, if you go to visit the ANA in Colorado Springs, in their museum, you can see many of the the key coins from the Bass Collection are on display at the museum, and they are absolutely amazing. One of the highlights was the 1913 Liberty Nickel episode in 2003 mm -hmm. when we rediscovered the missing 1913 Nickel. Uh, we wrote a 300-page book about that uh, event. Yeah, and um, you were like a, one of a handful of folks in the room when it was being authenticated and and discovered, correct? There there were six of us. Yes. And the coin was uh, declared not genuine and returned to the family in 1963 or 62, I believe yeah. it was. This is the George O. Walton The George family. O. Walton North family. Carolina, mm -hmm. for the listeners who might not know the backstory. Right. And the coin was returned to them and it had been declared as not authentic. Forty years later, the family brought the coin to us in 2003. I took one look at it. I had already seen the Eliasberg 1913 nickel. I looked, took one look at this piece, and I knew it was real just right away. Yeah. We were in a situation that nobody had been in before us except for Eric Newman. We had all five of the 1913 nickels on the table in front of us. There yeah. were six of us uh, that were on the authentication team. It was an amazing time. Absolutely. And to get the backstory a little more, there was a national effort publicized to find this missing nickel and bring it to the Baltimore show, the ANA show in Baltimore. There was a, a reward, $10,000 or $5,000, something like that, maybe even $50,000. Okay. The reward, the reward was a two-part reward. There was a million-dollar reward to locate the missing nickel. And we felt very comfortable. Basically, what that said was if we locate the missing nickel, we will put it in an auction. It will bring more than a million dollars, which it did. There was also a $10,000 bonus for us to be the first ones to see it. 
because we obviously didn't want it going to our competitors. Sure. So the family got the immediate $10,000 bonus. And then when I joined Heritage, the family brought the coin to Heritage to sell in 2013, the 100th anniversary of the date on the coin. And we did a nice catalog presentation, and uh, it was quite an event. So that was certainly the highlight of my career. But I've I've been fortunate. I've handled 80 of the 100 greatest U.S. coins, and quite a number of the, the other 20 are in museums and will never be available to handle. Once I joined Heritage, one of the first things that I uh, recall uh, as a major cataloging event was when three different brazier doubloons ended up on my desk for cataloging. That was spectacular. One would be exciting enough. One would be exciting enough. Two would be incredible. To have three of them on my desk at one time was just, I can't describe it. It was absolutely amazing. One of them had the punch on the breast, another had the punch on the wing, and the third one was the uh, the Lima style. As opposed to Lima, Ohio, this was Lima, Peru, so it was the Lima style uh, doubloon. That was the third piece. Other collections, the Walter Huzak Large Scent Collection, the Wes Rasmussen Large Scent Collection, the Ed Price Collection of Dimes and Quarter Eagles. I guess the one that really stands out above all others at Heritage is the uh, four-part Gene Gardner collection. What a sensational opportunity to to work with the Gardner family. They are wonderful people, and that was an amazing opportunity. What roles have you typically found that families that own these collections, you know, you mentioned the Gardner family, for example, what role do they typically play in a sale? Obviously, they're consigning it to you, so they're dictating a certain amount of it, but are most families and owners very engaged with the sale or do they tend to defer to the expertise of people at Heritage and other major auction firms? Everyone is different. Some some families want to dictate point by point by point exactly what's going to happen. In other cases, we will suggest to them the best way to go. You know, this is what we think you should do. We will outline a complete procedure on how to handle the collection, but every family is different. I remember many years ago when we handled the Eliasburg collection back when I was at Bowers Marina, he developed a multi-page auction agreement stipulating everything that he wanted to have happen with the collection and the sale of the collection, and it was a very complicated agreement. On the other hand, um, and this was actually before I could arrived at Bowers Marina, but they had just concluded the Norweb sales. The attorneys for the Norweb said, oh, your standard agreement is fine. So every situation is different. We normally are in a position where we would like to work with the family to develop a very specific procedure on how everything is going to happen. We'll outline advertising that we're going to do with CoinWorld, for example. We'll go through point by point and develop a, a plan of action. How much interaction does a firm like Heritage have, and in your experience has Heritage had, with museums, because you mentioned that, you know, of the 100 greatest U.S. coins, you've handled examples or the only existing example for, you know, 80 of them, but a number of others are in museums where they can't be accessed by the public. Do museums work through Heritage? Is there a significant relationship between 
museums and academic collections and things like that and heritage, or is it largely private sales? No, the museums definitely uh, work with with us. Um, you know, certainly the ANA has worked with us. Uh, uh, we've done some work with ANS. Most of the coins that I mentioned, those specific coins, the majority of them are in the Smithsonian, and they're not going to be disposing of anything that I know of. Obviously, we would be uh, ready to step right up if they ever decided that they wanted to dispose of items, but uh, that's not going to happen. I don't believe, but there are, there are many museums that have decided from time to time that it's time to dispose of certain items to deaccession items, and they will come to us, and then they're pretty much like any other consigner. We will work out a very specific plan. So it would seem like just from this side of the the table, as it were, that working at an auction house is better than being a collector because all of a sudden you have access, quote unquote, to things that you could never afford otherwise, even though eventually you have to say goodbye to them. This is why I do not personally collect coins because I work with all these great rarities, brazier doubloons, 1913 nickel, 1804 silver dollars. I work with all these great rarities that I could never afford. So there's nothing I could collect that I would really appreciate at this point in time. They give you that thrill. (laughs) But that doesn't stop you from doing research into all sorts of areas. You mentioned some large sense and, and copper collections. That's a an area of particular interest and strength, correct? I've been very seriously interested in early copper, colonial coins, half cents, large cents for close to 50 years. I joined Early American Coppers in 1973. Wow. And I am now the EAC organization's national historian, and I'm actually working on a history of the early American coppers that was founded in 1967. Fantastic. So that's just one area, though, of your expertise. You've also had a little bit to do with a book on silver dollars, correct? I worked on uh, the Silver Dollar Encyclopedia that Dave Bowers produced back in the early 1990s. And the uh, early Silver Dollar section uh, is known, the Silver Dollar varieties are known by their BB numbers. Yes, and one of those um, is for you. Which is uh, the the Bowers-Borkart numbers. Essentially, I wrote most everything in the chapters from 1794 to 1803. That's fantastic. It's clear that you have a love and a passion, appreciation for numismatics. Is there an area that you want to explore, but you haven't been able to because of these constraints with your busy cataloging or your being a historian for EAC? There are several areas that I would like to research further. I actually have a very uh, strong interest in classic head gold coinage varieties, and I've been working on detailed notes to hopefully produce a variety reference on that series, which nobody has done to any extent. John McCloskey had published some variety notes in a ANS Coinage of the Americas Conference book in 1989, I believe. Yeah. So that's now 30 years old. And that's a series that it needs a very good reference work and none exist at this point. Any sort of timeline on that? Is that something for retirement or semi-retirement or you're going to try to wedge that in with the bowling and everything else? Every time I try and give an estimate of timing, it comes back to bite me. 
So, so no, there's no estimate of time on that. What resources in compiling a list of early silver dollars, for example, what resources do you find the most helpful? Do you find you rely on the coins themselves to tell a story? Do you rely on primary sort of mint documents and records that are kept in historical institutions? Or do you find that there's a good body of secondary research that helps you if you're trying to value a collection or doing your own research? All of the above. We obviously study the coins themselves. Or in the case of that particular reference, uh, we studied the uh, photos of the coins. We had the luxury of going through the Bowers and Marina photo files, which were the original photographs taken for the auction catalogs. And I studied those photos very carefully to, to do variety notes and to do die states. Uh, we looked at the uh, early mint records for the historical information. The secondary publications, the Bolander book on early silver dollar varieties, for example, laid the groundwork for what we did after that. And then the first edition of the Silver Dollar Encyclopedia laid the groundwork that Dave Bowers came up with the second edition for just the early dollars. So everything builds on what's been done before. To double back a little bit to talking about the way sort of your path into numismatics, into heritage, it seems to me that David Bowers or any sort of equivalent luminary now wouldn't necessarily be putting a help wanted ad into a newspaper. Do you think that the professional path that you followed can be replicated? And if so, what institutions today would be able to replicate the kind of path that you had? So much has changed over the years. Literally, when I first went to to Bowers Marina in 1989, it literally was a help wanted ad, I think, in CoinWorld that I responded to. Today, uh, we have the internet, we have everything else, the social media, it's completely different. You know, we did not have the internet per se back in the 80s. There was no such thing as Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of the other social media sites. So it's completely different today. I don't know if the path that I took could be replicated a lot of it is I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. You mentioned the impact of the internet and social media and other sort of digitized and electronic mediums. Has that fundamentally changed the high-end market for coins? Because Heritage obviously now has an online presence, and it seems that every auction firm has to manage some kind of a two-step in traditional coin auctions, but maintaining a robust enough online presence and enough online advertising to reach a broader and broader audience. How do you find that technology has changed the work that you, aside from the obvious access to digitized information, the selling process and the acquisition process for large auctions? How, how has that changed in the internet? Today, Heritage Live with our firm is amazing. It really is. Heritage was really the first company of all the major auction houses to have a strong online presence. Jim Halperin, uh, our co-chief executive officer, he recognized early on in working with Steve Ivey, they committed substantial resources to an online presence at a time when no other firm was committing hardly any resources. Because of that, they developed the Heritage website, the auction archives. All of that today is 
incredible in terms of providing information free of charge. Extremely robust. Without a doubt. The Heritage Live software today is basically the that is the the auction so to speak uh, without heritage live you know the auction uh, market would be like it was 30 or 40 years ago we are selling a substantial percentage of our auction sales via heritage live and that begs the question or or raises the issue so many shows today almost it, it seems exist as only a venue for a firm to have an auction. You look out on the floor and it's mostly dealer to dealer transaction. How does this modern landscape, you know, there's so much, certainly at the lower end, you know, Heritage is not going to be selling a $200 coin a lot. I mean, yes, there's the weekly auction that, that has more affordable stuff, but where does that fit in given that, you know, say, you know, central states last week, very mixed results from from dealers, lots of wholesale, tons of wholesale business, but, you know, not retail necessarily, but it's a venue for the auction. At what point does the auction firm not decide to go to the show because you have such the reach and the platform already online? I think we still have to, uh, all the auction firms still have to go to the shows. The shows provide the venue to hold the major sales. You know, working with, for instance, the American Numismatic Association, the World's Fair of Money is still a very viable event in the coin show circuit, if you will. Sure. Uh, I don't know that that's going to change. Anytime soon, anyway. Certainly not anytime soon. With the online presence, uh, attendance is probably down a little bit from what it used to be. I don't think it's down much, especially at a show like the ANA show. Central States, I, I didn't hear any attendance numbers, so yeah. I don't know what the uh, specifics were. Well, I, I know at some shows I've gone to, you walk into the auction room and it's like there aren't many people there. That speaks nothing to how vibrant the bidding is, again, because the bids are going crazy. It's just they're not physically in attendance. For many collectors, the uh, online real-time bidding has been a wonderful option. Let's say a typical collector might have an annual budget of $10,000. 20 or 30 years ago, they were going to spend half their budget on travel expenses going to the different coin shows and the auctions. Today, they don't have to spend any of that budget traveling. They can sit at home and spend the full amount on their collections. So, so that's certainly changed for many bidders. The higher-end collectors that are buying the six- and seven-figure coins, I think they still want to come to the conventions and participate in person. It's an experience. It is. As someone who's conducted very detailed and professional numismatic research, the amount of misinformation that's available to potential buyers, potential sellers, anybody on the Internet or whatever other source it is that people trying to seek out information on. What in your mind is the best way to disseminate accurate information to, to buyers and sellers so that there's not such a serious information asymmetry between buyers and sellers and the people who go to sell a large family collection, for example, have realistic expectations and the best information going into that transaction? It's an interesting question. As catalogers at Heritage, and I know at the other firms as well, 
We try to be very careful to uh, provide the the proper information to potential buyers at the sales. There is a lot of misinformation, some sites, not public auction sites, but other auction sites that a buyer should be very careful about. It's the same with genealogy or any other research hobby. You have to be very careful to try and distinguish what's fact and what's fiction. I know when I when I do my family history research, which is my hobby, I see a lot of fiction on the different websites. And it's, sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish. So we as catalogers, we try to be very, very careful in verifying the information that we present. Point World staff writers, I'm sure, do the exact same thing. You know, you have to be very careful about the information you present. Do you find that outside of hobby publications, something like Coin World, for example, do you find that there is a strong or even existent understanding of the coin market and of coin auction firms like Heritage? Or do you find that mainstream media and the public at large just doesn't really have any idea about what you do? I think that the mainstream media is starting to get a better understanding than they had any time in the past. You know, anybody is able or is going to provide misinformation occasionally. Uh, I'm actually involved in researching a uh, Indian peace medal right now, which is that exact scenario. This is a large size silver President Polk Indian peace medal from 1845. And it appeared in a small estate auction in the Los Angeles area in 1992. The auction house said that all the material was the property of President Millard Fillmore and had been passed down through his family to his great-grandson and on to the current owners who were selling the material. And the Los Angeles Times got a hold of all of this, and they uh, did this great article about all this stuff passing down through uh, President Fillmore's descendants, and there's only one problem. <laughs> President Fillmore had two children. Neither of them were married or had children of their own. Therefore, he did not have any descendants. <laughs> it, it turned out when I did the actual uh, ancestral research that the material was from President Fillmore's brother, Clayton Fillmore, through his descendants to the present day. But that was just a case where somebody just didn't bother to do the proper research. Is the inverse of that also true, though, that the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction that people come up with? Sometimes. The whole Walton story is... Exactly. Those. Exactly. That's, you know, That's exactly right. You know, George Walton to, was known to travel around all over, mm, mostly the eastern seaboard, and carry this, what people thought, well, oh, it, it's a 1913 nickel, but is it really? It's probably fake. And, you know, he dies and it's it's swept up in the debris of the wreck and put in a closet for 40 years and, and all of a sudden it's authenticated. The only reason it was uh, preserved for all those years in the family closet is because all the material, George Walton was never married. He didn't have any uh, children, so there were no errors. So everything went to his sister. And the only reason that she actually kept that piece after she was told it was not authentic is that she was born in 1913. Ah. 
And um, so she decided to keep it, and then it passed down to her children, uh, Ryan Gibbons and uh, Cheryl Myers, and uh, their two other siblings. The whole story was really pretty incredible. It was not something that I think you could write up as a a script for a movie. Yeah. Uh, There was an episode of Strange Inheritance that uh, featured that nickel. Yes, yes. And, and as you mentioned earlier, the subject of million-dollar nickels, and it's been, of course, the subject of many Coin World articles over the last 16 years from the time that it was discovered, and so it has a secure place in numismatic history. Do you find that if a false narrative that's especially interesting, whether it's this 43 uh, bronze scent or any of the other sort of numismatic fall, hit piece metal, any of the other sort of numismatic falsehoods, do you find that those are really difficult to dislodge once they've kind of wedged themselves in the popular mind? There are situations where it's almost impossible. The whole story about the 1792 half Disney, for example, which was said to be made from George Washington's or Martha Washington's <laughs> uh, silverware. Yeah. Well, no, that's not really the case. It makes a fun story. It's a great story, but it's, it's just, just wrong. It's just not true. <laughs> Pretty sure I accidentally so, uh, wrote that in a rough draft of an article for here, but we'll leave that out. <laughs> one one of the uh, the statements was that it was made from George Washington's silver plate. Well, silver plate at the time was a term for bullion. So it was his silver bullion, but it was actually uh, Thomas Jefferson who provided the silver bullion to have the half Disney's mate. So it's still an interesting story. You know, Thomas Jefferson provided the bullion for this coin. That's I think anybody who hears that is going to be like, oh, that's really cool. Right. Without a without a doubt. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was not Martha Washington's silver service. Yeah. <laughs> right. So even if reality is similarly interesting, it's hard to dislodge a, a fun or appealing lie. When I, I think it's uh, like a, a newspaper uh, uh, adage, uh, if a story is repeated enough times, it becomes fact. Sure. Very true. We've been exploring the the history, the past a lot. Let's talk about the present and the future. Obviously, Heritage has a large role in the the modern numismatic landscape. What is the current state of the market? What are you you guys experiencing? And what are your thoughts, whether it's just individually or as a representative of Heritage, as uh, for the market in the, the coming decade? Understand that my role at Heritage is a researcher and a cataloger. I am not out in the market on a day-to-day basis buying and selling coins. So I am probably not the best person to ask what the state of the market is. It certainly seems to be very healthy. And what's going to happen in the, the future? Uh, I remember back in my uh, when my dad and I had our coin shop in Ohio, and people would come in and say, uh, "What's the price of silver going to do in the next thirty days?" And it's going to go up and down. <laughs> yeah, my standard re- my standard one word response was fluctuate. My dad would say that our crystal ball is broken and we can't get the spare parts to fix it. <laughs> we just you know we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Nobody does for sure. The market as far as I can tell, seems to be very healthy. And I think it'll continue that way. In terms of numismatic research, what, in your estimation, is an area that's underdeveloped 
and where do you think the next generation of researchers will find the most sort of fruitful field? There are a lot of areas, um, exonumia, that have been collected for, for many years, and uh, Civil War tokens, for example. They've been popular as collectibles for 50-plus years. It is finally at the point where they're being more carefully researched. And so I think that's a, an emerging area in terms of research. There have been uh, two absolutely amazing books that have come out recently, one on the patriotic tokens and another on the store cards. I think tokens and medals in general are an area that there's a lot of room for further research. Mainstream U.S. numismatics, it's all been pretty well covered for the most part. Reference works, uh, well, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm doing some work on Classic Head Gold and the Liberty Gold series. Uh, there's room for further study for those coins. Large cents have been studied since the 1870s, half cents since the 1890s. Uh, the early silver coins, starting with the, the Hazeltine type table in the 1880s, those series have been studied very carefully throughout the last 100, 150 years. But I think there are some areas that colonial numismatics, tokens and metals, I think those are areas that uh, there's a lot of room for further research. Outside of numismatists or potential buyers and sellers at somewhere like Heritage, what professional or intellectual field do you think, or fields, do you think would benefit most greatly from your research and the work of other numismatic researchers today? Walter Breen once called numismatics the bridge between art and science, and I think that's very accurate. There is a lot of lot of art background in numismatics. There's a lot of science. There's financial history. I think you can go off into several different fields that would benefit from numismatic study. Neil Carruthers, I believe, did the book on fractional money. Mm -hmm. And that was a book done in the 1930s that's still very much valid today. And it's essentially financial history involving numismatics. So I think the financial history would, would benefit from numismatics, you know, banking history in terms of paper money. And then if we got into the world numismatics, uh, there are a lot of different areas, but that's outside of my specialty. Sure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was my a pleasure. lovely conversation. My pleasure. Yeah, we've had a blast. Thanks again. You are most welcome. And uh, I should mention that everybody should go visit ha.com. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to that interview with Mark Borkart of Heritage Auctions, well-known researcher. We hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, and if you've been enjoying the other episodes of the Coin World podcast that you've been listening to, remember not only to tune in for every new episode, but to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for the Coin World podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Wolfinch. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from Coinworld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.